What's up, you freaks? Welcome to The Highway with Kyle Shutt. I am Kyle Shutt, and we got a treat for you this week. We have Mr. Mike Bishop on the program, a.k.a. Blothar the Berserker from Gwar. We talked about all kinds of rad shit, like touring in the 80s in a school bus, like getting your master's degree in fucking music. What? Sign me up for that shit. If you like what you hear on the program, please give us a follow. Subscribe where you can subscribe. It really helps us out. And if you want to go one step further, you can find us on patreon.com slash the highway. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat. Get yourself some early access to next week's episode. And even get yourself a shout out on the program like Albanetta, Gavin Mahan, Nathan Custer, and Derek Toro. We also have to give some mad love to Heil Microphones, our lovely sponsors. If you like the way I sound, it's because there's a Heil in front of me. Now, I could go on and on all day long about how I love each and every one of you, but that's a different podcast. On this show, we do things my way. The Highway. What's up? Not much, man. Mike Bishop, everybody. Blothar the Berserker from Guar. And uh, Keep On. So many, so many bands. I want to talk about them all. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for being a part of the program, man. Um, we've actually never met before, but uh, we have so many mutual acquaintances. Uh, and I've, I've heard a lot of stories about you, uh, mostly from uh, Trivet Wingo, mm-hmm. the original drummer from The Sword. Uh, y'all played together in a band called The Tips which is one of those bands that you just can't find anything about anywhere. <laughs> no, no, the Tips Tips did one recording, which I really liked, but I, I don't have. Um, and uh, it never came out. I might see about trying to put it out at some point. But, uh, yeah, it was a neat little project, uh, me and him and Tim Harris. And uh, so it was kind of like, keep on without you know with Trivet playing drums um and it was it was uh it was different though I mean, it, it was it was good i mean you know Trivet was very young at the time um i think tim and i were busy doing other stuff so it kind of didn't didn't last too long but it was it was i think it was a good project yeah i heard the record and it was i mean if it would have come out at the time it was current y'all would have been huge i mean it was it kind of it was a punk band i i guess yeah, you know, yeah at, the, at sure. the end of the day but uh, that's what it was <laughs> but uh with uh yeah with with trivet being so young i, I can imagine because i was kind of the young one uh coming up in austin especially being in the sword we started when i was 20 Uh-oh. so yeah I, I know what it's like playing with some people that have sort of been around the block a little bit longer than you and they just the motivations can be different for like you know those kinds of people playing music together i was born in 83 mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's about when you started playing in guar so um around there at least am i am i wrong no um it's about the time i started playing music period though like around uh, uh as a matter of fact it was the year that that i uh started my first punk band which was just a hardcore band from richmond uh or actually from hopewell virginia Nice. And um, playing music through the 80s and 90s in, in underground bands, it seemed like it was so much different than it is today because it was like strictly word of mouth. Like if you didn't have 
your video on MTV or songs on the radio or anything. Like you basically just, I mean, all, all you really had was like fan clubs and mail order and, and just playing shows and, and word of mouth and, and stuff like that. Did you, um, did you ever have huge aspirations to like get your videos out there and get songs on the radio and stuff? Or was it really more of like a, just a, a passion project? Um, well, I mean, in the very beginning, because you're dealing with, uh, you're dealing with, uh, you know, punk rock. I mean, and we were so young, I think our goals were really just to sort of do shows and, uh, and be a part of this scene that was going on. Um, you know, and, and along the way we learned, okay, we learned, you know, well, we have to do a recording. Um, I don't think anybody ever, and that's kind of one of the things about hardcore is that like, for a minute, that was a movement where people didn't really think in terms of like, we're going to, you know, put a record out and, and, uh, and we can go on tour, but even like going on tour was, uh, like those were the goals, right? It wasn't like, we're going to sell records, you know, <laughs> like nobody was really thinking that they were in danger of getting radio airplay or anything like that, you know? So it's like, um, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and they weren't, certainly weren't structuring. I mean, all you got to do is look at Austin's right. The butthole surfers. I mean, you don't name a band that if you're trying to yeah. do something other than entertain yourself and your friends and people who are like you, you know? Um, so, I mean, uh, and I think that that's very much what, mm. what hardcore was about. It didn't look outside. And in that, it was distinct from punk in uh, in Europe, right, Where uh, or, or other punk in the, in the United States, sort of the late 70s era punk, where I don't think that that was the goal, right? Uh, you know, The Clash were on a major label, always, you know, so Sex Pistols were on a major label. The Damned were on a major label that, um, you know, and, and even when they were on independence, the independence sort of acted as majors. Very different in hardcore. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, strictly mail order pretty much was like how you got your records back then. Uh, right. I mean, or like smaller record stores and stuff like that. Cause distribution really wasn't a thing, right? No, no, we had, uh, we for sure had, there was something called toxic branch records, which was a store that was in, um, mm -hmm. I guess in, uh, I don't think it was Phoenix. It was in Arizona. Um, I'm pretty sure, but I don't think it was Phoenix. It was, uh, like, and it wasn't Flagstaff. What's the other big town in Arizona? I can't. Tucson. Two, yeah. I think it was, it might've been Tucson. Um, but, yeah. yeah. It, it was, it was somewhere around there. Like, uh, that they had, uh, this record store that uh, put out a mail order catalog um, called Toxic Shock. And we, yeah, every single record that I had came from that mail order catalog it was, uh, or it came from uh, the other place that I would, would send my money to was uh, uh, Plan 9 Records in Richmond, which was an independent record store that had uh -huh. you know some stuff they had uh what i remember and this is a, something that's interesting about hardcore that not a lot of people 
not having a lot of money, right? Like if I went into a store, um, and you know, the new record by the English dogs was out, right? Uh, well, I knew about the English dogs and I wanted that record. I knew about GBH. I wanted that record, but a lot of times I couldn't afford those records that were in the nice sort of heavyweight vinyl. These are, you know, they were imports and, uh, the American hardcore bands were $3 or $5 for an album, you know? So that's what I was buying. (laughs) That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, getting, getting in the music scene and then sort of rising up the ranks, per se, because Guar was definitely not your typical band. Uh, I, it's been, you know, talked to death. I mean, obviously everybody knows sort of like the the, the, the story and the rise and stuff, but um, th- through those years of, of touring and everything like that, what uh, I love to ask, like, how different was it, you know, back then touring where, like, you just had an atlas and you just had a van and a trailer full of, yeah, gear and costumes and stuff, and there you just, like, have to stop at gas stations, at, at, you know, to, to use the payphone to call the promoter to get directions to the club and stuff like that. How, uh, yeah, uh, uh, how much... <laughs> that's uh, exactly what, I mean, you not, just Not only how different it. was it necessarily... <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's... Yeah, but I just much. mean, like, what? How, how did that feel versus touring these days, you know? Um, well, I mean, Guar plugged into that... Uh, and I think that, that the answer to that is different than uh, for Guar than it is for, for Keepone. Um, uh, but not much, right? Like even by the time Keepone came on the scene in the early 90s, I mean, we were still like not using MapQuest or anything like that. It was uh, we're still getting directions and getting a tour book and following those and calling people to get where we're going. Um and so it was still that kind of touring. It's just that, but for Guar, I mean, that was like, you know, we plugged into the hardcore American punk underground that had been kind of carved out the network of clubs that were carved out by the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and Circle Jerks. Um, and, you know, and then all of the like smaller hardcore bands that were that were touring and stuff. Uh, so, I mean, Guar getting started, we even played uh, better youth organization shows, which are uh, BYO shows were, um, if you've ever seen the movie Suburbia, um, uh, there's a, you know, they, they deal a lot with uh, the sort of the very early days of uh, social distortion um, when they were kind of a, uh, you know, just a different band and like, you know, DI and stuff like that. And these LA bands and then kind of lined up with bands from uh, the East coast. And you would have these shows that were oftentimes in church basements and stuff like that. And it was a unofficial sort of organization called better youth organization. Uh-huh. Um, so Guar, like, I mean, we even played some of those shows early on. Um, and in for, for us, you know, we were in a big yellow school bus just kind of rolling out, um, uh, we would paint the school bus different colors sometimes, but it was kind of like the Partridge family or something. It was really, uh, you know, it could only go 55 miles an hour, maybe. Um, and when we, and we discovered that that was by design, right? Like, I mean, we took the, took the governor off of it and immediately like dropped an act. Like it just fucked it all. 
<laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I mean, the, the only good thing about it is that it was made by International Harvester. All the buses that we had, we wound up having like three or four of those things. Um, and they were all, uh, you know, we bought them used and they were made by International Harvester usually. So, like, no matter where we broke down, we could get it fixed, right? There was uh, always, uh, you know, in Butte, That's Montana, awesome. there's a bunch of International Harvester dealers. Um yeah, so I mean, it, it was fun, and it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was certainly more fun than touring is now um, to me, uh, because but it's it was in retrospect a lot more difficult, right? Like, um, um, you can still sort of maintain some kind of a vestige, a vestigial connection. Um, to your home while you're on tour now, right? Like, because you've got the internet and you've got phones and and you can be connected. You can even work your job, which is what I do when we go out on the road. Um, But, like, then, man, you were just cutting the fuck off. I remember, like, the big thing was stolen uh, phone cards, like buying or finding um, telephone cards that, that were somehow cracked and we'd like use them forever to call home and because uh, i mean you couldn't like it's it, long distance was a thing like even that so um you're yeah. really sort of cut off um from your home life and uh you know i think more dependent on each other uh to survive uh difficult situations um and uh touring became sort of a life in its in and of itself you know which it it is now like you know i mean people think of it in those terms like they're just trying to sort of survive it um but i mean there really isn't any comparison between riding on you know the buses that we ride now and and a school bus that you know every i mean at first we didn't even have bunks in it we had just one big open area where everybody laid down in sleeping bags and stuff you know i mean it was like really weird <laughs> our our cruise control was an actual That's yeah, an actual cinder block that you would just put on the <laughs> you just put the cinder block on the on the gas pedal and roll down the road with it um i woke up one time uh i'll never forget this and we were I was getting all jostled around. I woke up and we were just plowing through this median strip, you know, and our guitar player at the time, Dewey Rowell was asleep with it, with like a cinder block on the accelerator. So we were just kind of like going, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think the cinder block, it was so rough that it had kind of fallen off. So we, we weren't like racing or anything, you know, we were just kind of slowly cruising through this. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really interesting. And obviously you get pulled by the cops and it's like a major event and that would happen all the time. Um, Oh yeah. It was really, man, it was a lot of fun, you know, plus we constantly did drugs that were, you know, that we are too far too afraid to do anymore. So that was a blast. (laughs) Yeah, my God. And then going from that to just down to Keep Home with just like three people in a, I, I suppose it was a van. 
uh, instead of a huge yeah, bus. Yeah, yeah. Was that, right. We had, we had a van. Yeah, like, uh, did you like that better? Was that more, like, simpler or whatever? When yeah. I started Keepone and I realized what that was like, like, trav- that, that you could do touring that was essentially at a similar level to what Guar was doing. I mean, the band didn't have the kind of audience, but we were on tours, like, that were, you know, pretty good ones. Um, and it was, my main thing was I couldn't believe how easy it was compared to, uh, uh, working with, uh, with Guar, like, uh, you know, it's just so much, there's just so much more work in every aspect of it. It's a, it's a band that I don't think people understand how much effort goes into it, um, at the level of performing every night, at the level of making the costumes, at the level of, at, at that time of getting to show the show and, you know, imagine trying to support like, you know, in the very yeah. early days of your band, when you're making a hundred dollars, $300 and you're trying to support 14 people on the road. Like, you know, so it was like, I mean, we were paying money to do it. Like we had dues, we would actually pay uh, dues to the, to the band to, to be a part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, so getting in Keepone, it's like, wow. I mean, with this band, you get 350 bucks. It's like, yeah, that's cool. Just, you know, stick that in the bank and do that, you know, 40 times. Because that's another thing is that, like, Keepone had the capacity to tour a lot more than Guar. Um, so there was a lot more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we could do more shows. I mean, Guar, man, you did, you do like 18 shows in a row with that band. You're fucking dead. I mean, like, straight up legit dead. Um, you know, with Keepone, as long as my yeah. voice would hold out, we didn't ever have to take a day off. You know, it was just like, you just ride. <clears throat> so, yeah, it was very different. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, yeah. Trivet had told me uh, about this one story. I, I'd be interested to hear your, your take on it. Uh, that Because there was a, a ska band at the time yeah. called Capone. Well, yeah. Like Al Capone. Well, no, no they were called He said that y'all had got Scott accidentally Capone. booked yeah. on some ska festivals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we got booked. Oh, ska, sorry, yeah, ska, ska Capone, Capone. yeah. And, and they booked us. And I think it happened more than once. <laughs> but I know it happened once. I remember distinctly. And we're just playing, like, you know, and the kids, man, I mean, like, you know, because it was, like, it was a thing, like, you know, it, it, that's the other, the other thing about punk, too, is it was so regional that, like, you might wind up, you know, it's like we just got an offer from these kids that thought that we were, you know, so they went through our booking agent and booked this show, and, like, it never occurred to them that we weren't the same band. <laughs> I don't even know how that's possible. Um but uh there wasn't an internet to speak of that you could like right. you know, research this yeah. stuff you know and yeah yeah but, but i mean when we got there you know like it was also regional that like in that particular part of the country and i've seen this with guar too like you know we'll be riding around and you get to some place where weirdly like everybody's rockabilly it's like what the fuck like in this town everybody's rockabilly it's rockabilly town right like <laughs> um and, and this was ska town you know everybody was ska yeah. um so, like, we did our our show and our, our set, and the kids just hated it, man. I mean, they just, you know. Oh, Yeah, God. so we played 30 minutes, and then we're like, give us our money, and we're leaving. Bye. Well, um, also, and I, I, I'm pretty sure you were in the band at the time. I, I know your departure from Guar kind of in the mid-'90s um, that lasted until just a few years ago. 
Um, that was sort of at the same time when Beavis and Butthead were playing y'all, you know, uh, on uh, MTV a lot. Uh, was that your only MTV play? Um, no. Um, the first time that we were on MTV, I think, was like on like 120 minutes or something like that. I mean, uh, I remember him showing up in New York very early on. I remember shooting some stuff like in the basement of the Ritz or um, one of these clubs that we play in New York, maybe even Webster Hall, um, where, uh, uh, or Webster Hall was the Ritz. So it must have been the Ritz. Um, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm fucked up about that. But it was some club in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was, yeah. yeah. And uh, and there, we, we did, uh, like, uh, I think Kurt Loder, he was right there, like, interviewing us and... Um, you know, so we met the VJs and uh, and we were on at least a couple times on MTV, like on MTV News. Like we'd get on there like every, you know, every every once in a blue moon. Um, and they would play on some of the alternative shows that they had. They would play early Guar, uh, Guar stuff, but like not on the, on the metal show. Like the metal guy hated Guar because he thought that Guar was like a... Um, well, I think he rightly understood that Guar was making fun of heavy metal, which means we're making fun of him because he's a fucking douchebag. So he he didn't put us <laughs> on his show. So, um, uh, we, but we were on, uh, you know, like like the the sort of alternative or the punk punk ones when they would do that. And then we got on Beavis and Butthead, and that was by far the most exposure that we had had at that point, by far. Yeah. And you were even uh, in the video game, which I thought was crazy because that was like Guar was like the plot of that game hinged upon a Guar show and <laughs> tickets to that show being ripped up and strewn all over town. What was that like being like in a video game that was on that big a level? Um, I don't think we really appreciated and we certainly didn't get compensated uh for the Beavis and Butthead game, maybe in the way that we should have. Um, when I think now about how much it would cost to make Guar the centerpiece of a video game, um, or but also it was just cool. Like it was, I mean, we were very, you know, so in the moment we were really stoked yeah. on it. We were like, man, um, I don't remember, I, I don't think I ever played it. Um, I still haven't played it. I'd probably like to play it sometime. Have you played that game, Mike? Mike Dirks? It's really good. It's actually a really super fun game. I, I played it a we lot. We never played it. I was uh, younger, yeah. It, why didn't we play it? We played video games all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's hard. Right. Yeah, somebody gave us the cheat code so we could get to the end and see the Guar show. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. But, uh... Yeah, it was. There was the thing too. It was like a secret ending where if you got the ticket and you went to the show, you could actually like hop over the barricade and run around backstage and get in there and like go hang out with y'all backstage. It was hilarious. Oh man, man that's really cool. It was a good game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you could find an emulator with it. You give, give it. A, it'll take you an afternoon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, after 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 your you know departure from Guar and just sort of, uh, kind of laying low for a while, uh, you became uh, a rather educated man. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about your, your PhD in music from, uh, UVA, which is, uh, 
awesome. I mean, like, I, I, I don't even, I, honestly, I have no idea what even goes into that. And I just wanted to, uh, yeah, to, to, to just get your opinion on like what that means, uh, I, I guess, um, well, to be a, to be Dr. Rock, yeah. you are Dr. Rock. I mean, come on. Yeah, I am. There was, uh, <laughs> so like, you know, being in like once keep on like sort of, uh, like I mean, we just kind of chilled our ambitions and we're like, you know, all right. And I was still playing music like I did the Tips and I did American Grizzly, some other band bands that I was playing with. Um, but I, I, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money and I knew that I, you know, I was doing dumb, dumb jobs and I was like, man, this sucks. So I basically got a, you know, I figured I sort of got into uh, school and I realized really quickly that I was pretty good at at teaching writing. Hello, look who's on the podcast. He's on the podcast, Mike. Who's that? Who's that puppy? Oh, this is Otto. What's up, Otto? Um, so, hey, Otto. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, we went. You know, like once I got into community college, I I, I found out that I liked teaching because I worked in the. Uh, in the, the resource center and helped like tutor kids. And I was like, you know what? I could probably do this, but I just like, you know, it was so easy. School was just easy for me. And so I stayed, you know, and then transferred to UVA. And then when I was in at UVA, I did this, uh, this piece called white trash. that was about Elvis. Um, and the kind of connection between Elvis and, uh, um, uh, uh, Southern working class people. Um, and, uh, one of the music professors at UVA, uh, was teaching the class and he distributed it around to other people at the department. And on the strength of that essay, they invited me to apply to grad school. So that's what I did. Um, and, uh, I wrote about pop music, and I did research on performance studies and uh, and uh, American music history. And I started teaching all that stuff. And at the same time, I also was hired by the English department to teach writing. So I did that as well uh, at UVA uh, for a long time. And, you know, I just kind of stayed and stayed um, and got my Ph.D. And then, uh, you know, after an extended stay like uh and while i was in school like i had started playing again like i started uh, this cover band that was really a lot of fun called the misery brothers um we did country and soul covers uh and and it was a blast um i played with uh uh, this uh sarah white who was a a musician singer songwriter from uh, uh charlottesville and that was cool. Um, we made a, uh, I think we made a record. I'm not sure, but, uh, I know she made a record. I don't know if I was on that one. Um, but, uh, you know, and then eventually just sort of moved back to Richmond. I mean, well, actually, I mean, I would have just continued doing Sarah White stuff, but then, uh, Dave Bronke died and I got this call to come back to Richmond and that's what I did. <laughs> that's wild man what was it um what was it like leaving guar 
for so long. Did you did you pay attention to what they were doing and then watch that whole kind of like yeah, I paid attention. Like dip and I mean, then rise and then that kind of roller coaster ride, or did you just sort of check out? I mean, well, I mean, at first I checked out, but like, uh, you know, I, I went to see the band play um, a couple of times, um, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I I kept abreast of what they were doing, you know, uh, probably more so in the you know i mean school really took up a lot of my brain for like a long you know for like a decade almost if you count the undergrad and all that stuff so um Uh that's a long time to be in school but like uh you know so guar did a million things during that time period um that i wasn't aware of uh but you know certainly Towards the end of my school, when I got some breathing room, I definitely started to pay more attention. Also, the Internet by that time had made it easier, right, for me to keep abreast of what what the band was doing. Yeah. So I did. Mm -hmm. You know, I've I've talked to some people that had bands that were kind of like from the 90s going into the whole streaming era and music being a downloadable commodity and things like that. Did you... I mean, I don't even I don't know if you had any uh, royalty checks to speak of before then, but I had definitely heard a lot of stories of royalty checks going way way down uh, with that. Did you experience any of that kind of like downswing of just all of a sudden you maybe you're used to getting a check for you know a few thousand dollars and now it's for you know forty bucks or anything like well, that? Well, <laughs> first of all, I mean, weirdly for the longest time because Guardian really. Like I wasn't looking for anything from the band and we didn't, and it wasn't structured for them to pay out anything. Um, and the way that it was set up, like we had all kind of, uh, given up our, or we thought we had, um, given up our sort of claim on those monies. And in any case, all that money went back into the production that Gore was doing. Like nobody was pulling money out of that band, um, and, and doing anything other than like, surviving and making a show right like that's what they were doing so um uh-huh. uh i didn't really look for that uh keep on on the other hand actually when we sold records we made half you know it was a 50 50 deal with with uh, uh so i mean i started making money from keep on uh before i really started making money from guar although when i had been in guar i was given a salary so that's not really true. Like, you know, I did get a kind of salary. Mm-hmm. Um, but but as far as mailbox money, like that was more of a, a keep on thing for me until right. Guar got their business together. Um, and now, you know, like I get money from them, uh, you know. But, yeah, I mean, of course, like it's gone down dramatically. Like, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. there was a time when recorded music made money, you know, and it just really doesn't anymore. Um, I, I know that Guar is um, never been shy about, uh, you know, uh, their, your political stance of being. I, I would I would say you're on the liberal side of things, <laughs> or maybe even on like the nihilistic side, <laughs> side of things. But uh, do you ever get those people that they just don't get it, or they, they get all twisted up because they find out that you're you're liberal or something? Like maybe they just don't like aren't paying attention or don't have the capacity to even understand what you're seeing about. I almost get to the point where I'm like, what band were you listening to that you're upset about? Right. <laughs> you <know? clears throat> well, 
I mean, this is weird because like, you know, and I think people have discovered this about music, though, like, you know, I mean, music scholars really. And, and any you could notice it without being like a fucking social scientist or anything, but like, you know, people bring their own meaning to music. Um, at least at least it's a, it's at least a 50 50 deal. Right. Like where, you know, if you lay down a meaning. Mm-hmm. And 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 it means something to you. If that meaning isn't conveyed or isn't received, um, then you know, and and it's never going to be received perfectly because it's received by people who are situated in their own lives with their own beliefs and their, you know. So when they hear what what you're doing, they bring their own meanings to it and. Um, certainly artists know that and, and even create art with that in mind. And I think war is an example of that. I mean, we tried to leave room uh, for people. Uh, and and I think that we did an effective, we were effective at that. Um, so that when the internet came around, it wasn't really until like, you know, the internet sort of made people communicate more uh, or, or facilitated more communication. Um, and it also sort of raised, <laughs> while lowering the standards for public discourse, um, it made public discourse a lot more available, <laughs> a lot more available for people. And so, like, what you would get a lot of times was, uh, pe- yeah, I mean, people that you realize that, okay, they receive Guar. I don't know how much more obvious you could be when you cut off the head of a Nazi skinhead, right? Um, exactly. But, you know, war is <laughs> complicated because we also, in that song, like, talked about uh, an art fact, you know? Like, I mean, we also, like, uh, and use that word, which, like, we would not we would not use right now. You know, I mean, we wouldn't do that stuff. Um, so, like... You know, there was always, and certainly in the work that Dave did, I think he really left room uh, for people, um, you know, and and it was very much a kind of sort of edgelord humor, right? It's like uh, pushing things to to an extreme um, and being in some sense protected by the absurdity of it. Um, And, uh, you know, but then they're like to us it was it was what it meant to us but then yeah you go on the internet and you find that well there's a lot of very right-wing war fans you know but it's not like i don't think that any of that had to do with our content it has to do with people um you know because you look at i mean if you watch if you read i follow phil from sacred reich and he's fighting this battle every day right like as he comes out and speaks politically, which he always has, but they weren't, you know, like 15,000 people aren't reading Circus Magazine's interview with Phil after the show in Tucson, where he talks about how Ronald Reagan was a cocksucker, right? So, like, they don't know. Mm. Now they know. Um, And so they comment, you know. Uh, And, and yeah, you you definitely discover that there's a sort of... uh, uh, right wing and a left wing um, following of Guar, um, and you know what, man? I'm going to go ahead out on a limb and say that punk is very populist, and it always has been. And the problem with populism 
is that it's facile. It supports both, uh, like, both fascism, I mean, extremes, political extremes, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so that's why you have Nazi yeah. punks and skinheads and why Screwdriver is a punk band, right? Like, um, and at the same time, you know, so is Minor Threat, Red Fugazi, you know, it's like, so there's uh, ways that that label is also very, uh, very fluid um, politically. Well, uh, what was it like coming back to Guar in a just completely different social environment? Um, I think that Guar, uh, uh, I mean, coming back to music period in a different social environment, it's weird, man, because it feels like, like, you know, on one hand there's less money in it, but on another hand, there's a lot more attention about it. Right. It's like, like, uh, there's a constant need for new stuff and for content. People are, people pay attention. And you can see the people, you know, you can interact with them. Um, and that really wasn't the case. Like you just see the people who show up at the shows and, and there's this sense of this almost uh-huh. eternally absent community that, that is somehow connected through whatever glue held them together. And, and it was the music, man. Like that's what held them together. And that's not really the case anymore. Like, um, so it's very different, uh, uh, the social and, and being in Guar. Um, and certainly the context, the social context is a challenge, you know, uh, keeping Guar relevant, um, keeping Guar, uh, uh, meaningful and constructive, right? Uh, those are things that, that we try to do. Um, so, (laughs) You know, and Guar always did those things in a way that was a little difficult to understand, really, like from a mainstream standpoint. Um, uh, but I think that the band has always done that, right? Like even when we were doing things that people would look at and say was objectionable, you know, um, like when Dave would occasionally use like the F word, like I said, like um, usually he did it in this way where he was claiming this identity that he actually didn't have, but he kind of did through his brother being gay and like, you know, and in any case, like the end effect of it was that it seemed to sort of mollify uh, or to, to, to build a connection between uh, our band and people that felt marginalized. Right. And I, I have been very proud of that aspect of war for a long time. And that's still true that people show up at our shows that are trans and that are in the front row, um, you know, somehow Guar just represents the disaffected, you know, social anathemas, um, moral Uh anathemas. (laughs) Guar is music for moral anathema. Um, So so that's cool. (laughs) That's going to be the tagline for this episode. Yeah. Uh, did y'all, uh, one thing I just loved about touring was that you end up, uh, making just some lifelong friends, sometimes with bands that you didn't even think that maybe you didn't even like necessarily or whatever. You just kind of took a tour because of this and you end up being, uh, you know, just the friends, uh, comrades and stuff. Uh, Were there any like favorite bands to tour with back then or like bands that Guar just sort of just like, like, uh, 
you know, they were like uh, just best buds uh, from the get go. Uh, the, um, I mean, early on we played with, we were kind of connected to the butthole surfers um, a lot. And then we were uh, connected with, uh, um, I guess in a later instance, Gore was like with this sort of, um, I'm trying to think, like, I mean, Gore didn't really have like a brother band that we went out with or sister band. We just did tours with people because Gore was mm-hmm. like so sort of unique. Um, but I think in the early days, like we were connected to the Butthole Surfers um, and we were connected to uh, people that were making uh, any kind of weird music, you know, like we travel with bands like Tragic Mulatto from San Francisco, or, you know, we traveled with a lot of alternative tentacles bands. Um, and, uh, it was cool, man. I mean, like, you know, but, but like, I don't think, I wouldn't say that there was like a, a guar, you know, like, like somebody that we really went out with a lot or anything like I could see why. I could see, like, yeah, you doing one tour with a band and then being like, okay, that was cool. All right, that's it. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's we part that. of that, part uh, of that, Kyle, is because we never were able to, like, I mean, with you guys, basically stayed on tour with Metallica for what seemed like years. And, uh, you know, Guar's never been able to open for a band, right? Like, like I mean, Metallica doesn't want right. their yeah. fan. Like, Guar presents a real logistic pain in the ass right you know we're not gonna set up uh-huh. with our stuff in the coliseum and do a show and then tear that shit down and there's no mess and and all their stuff stays and they just walk out <laughs> on stage and their crew doesn't have to fuck with that's not gonna happen you know like like guar's gonna have shit everywhere and right and there it's gonna be a big pain in the ass for the crew so it has to be a commitment you know um and and we've just never been able to make that happen mm-hmm for Guar, like so Guar is only ever i mean we, we've opened for bands on festivals which i think kind of proves that we can do it um and early on we opened for glenn danzig if i'm not mistaken opening for danzig and the butthole servers those were the only bands that i remember Guar really opening for um i think i think we opened for all no 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 they opened for us yeah because they wouldn't let us play first I think I can't remember. Um, uh, you know, so like <laughs> I'm looking over at Mike Dirks for trying to remember whether or not we opened for all, but I don't think he was in the band at that time. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was very, very weird. Um, uh, so, you know, I think that that sort of kept us from building a connection to a band. It was always like, we're just carrying out, you know, uh, uh-huh somebody that we were uh, maybe not friends with, but just people that we, that thought we thought could help the tour, you know? That's awesome, man. Well, dude, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and, and talk about all this stuff with us. Um, I just, uh, I love getting everybody's point of view from just uh, any aspect of being in a band because every single band does it differently. And I don't think anybody did it more different than y'all. <laughs> Uh, with very few exceptions, but, uh, so, so thank you for, for being a part of this. Um, is there anything, uh, y'all got coming up that you want to promote? I know the world is sort of in a semi-permanent shutdown right now, but, uh, do you, are there any plans on the horizon or any, any, uh, Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually do have a, a, a tip song 
you know, Whoa. <laughs> you want to play that. <laughs> yeah, man, play that thing. But uh, I've we, got we, Mean Streak. Oh, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, I will. Um, yeah, I will. Well, we've been, um, you know, we've been, I think that, that uh, uh, Guar, right now we're working on writing a record, um, and uh, that should be out in the late fall, and we should be doing our, uh, you know, we'll be, I mean, they're starting to think that, like, you know, people are going to be out, you know, that things are going to start coming back. That's what we're hoping. So um, that's what we're planning yeah, on. You know, we're, we're working, making a comic book and making a uh, uh, a big tour um, that's connected to it and, and trying to do something, you know, pretty ambitious all at one time. That sounds incredible. Yeah. I can't wait for that, man. Sweet. Well, uh, yeah, thanks again for being a part of this. And, uh, yeah, everybody, uh, we're going to play this tip song, Mean Streak. And, cool. uh, yeah, dude, rock and roll All for right. life. Take I it easy, man. Reason. I hope you don't either, man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, yeah. See you, Tuning into the highway this week. A big shout out to Reverend Guitars, Railhammer Pickups, and Earthquaker Devices. If you liked what you heard, you can follow where you can follow, subscribe where you can subscribe, and if you want to go one step further, you can support us on Patreon at the Highway with Kyle Shutt. For a few bucks a month, you can help us keep this party going, get early access to next week's episode, and even get yourself a shout out. 